You know what keeps me up at night? Not the ever-present Damocles of climate change, the expanding surveillance state, the backsliding of the world's most populous democracies, the ongoing pandemic, or the evils that social media has wrought upon entire generations of unsuspecting youth, and the lasting irreparable damage that that will have. No, not any of that. Superman, actually. For those of you who have any modicum of an interest in popular culture, particularly the superhero boom that has dominated movies, TV shows, and video games for the last 20 years, I'm sure you've noticed this trend. Across numerous mediums, there exist depictions of an omnipotent figure wielding an immense amount of influence who consistently violates human rights, laws, and basic morality in what they believe are just motives. I'm talking about the evil Superman. It's a recurring cliché in a lot of contemporary superhero stories, ranging from small, independent comics to the mainline depictions of the Man of Steel, as well as alternate universe and history concepts. But the question I want answered, and that I hope to answer in this deep dive, is why? Why do we keep coming back to this idea of an evil Superman? What makes this dark twist on an otherwise positive character so compelling for so many people? And furthermore, what does it say about us as a culture? Is art reflecting reality? Or more troublingly, is reality bound to reflect art? What are the implications of this fascination with a malevolent man of tomorrow? So, in this episode, I'm going to examine some of the most prominent and important examples of the evil Superman trope, with the hope of finding a connective thread and maybe, just maybe, finally understanding why we're obsessed with evil Superman. But first, I'm going to lay some ground rules. This isn't an exhaustive list of every time that Superman has been portrayed as a bad guy, but rather an examination of the ones I find most compelling, and the ones that have the most to say about us. This isn't necessarily a drag on the people behind these depictions either. These trends get popular for a reason, and artists are somewhat incentivized to chase them and put a unique spin on the concept. While I personally disagree with a lot of these interpretations take on the character, especially when they begin to insert themselves into the mainstream depictions, they have a unique hold on creators and audiences alike, and I think that's worth examining. So with that out of the way, let's dive in. Let's talk about politics. In 1942, the Superman radio show, yes, that was a real thing that aired for 11 years, coined the phrase truth, justice, and the American way. The catchphrase was popularized by its use in the opening credits of the 1950s TV series, The Adventures of Superman, and it became so ubiquitous that in 1978's Superman the Movie, the mantra was deliberately invoked to contrast Superman's old-fashioned optimism and community spirit with the cynicism and alienation of the 1970s, following things like the end of the Vietnam War and Watergate. Amazon Prime's The Boys takes the America-centric origin of Superman's character and turns it up to 11. In the world of the boys, superheroes aren't autonomous actors fighting crime and making decisions for the greater good, or in some cases, their own twisted perception of the greater good. Instead, superheroes are property, owned by a company called Vought International, which controls their every move. A vast crime-tracking division helps to predict where criminals will strike and where the heroes are most needed, PR teams help manage every aspect of the hero's lives, relationships, appearance, and speech. Vought competes for national security contracts with the US military, and the public adores them for it. 
In the same way that we can't get enough Marvel movies and origin stories, the superheroes and the boys are also the media's biggest stars, acting in their own franchises based on fictional versions of their lives. It's all propagandistic, of course, and Vought controls a massive percentage of the entertainment market. Movies, TV shows, music, defense contracting, and more. Heroes in the Boys are hedonistic, overly violent, greedy, indulgent, and all around, just terrible people. Essentially, imagine the worst entitled celebrities of any given era, and that's most of the heroes in the boys. But add on the fact that all of those entitled narcissists have superpowers. I should also mention real quick that I'm going to be discussing the Amazon Prime series rather than the original comic series, and there's a couple reasons for this. One, the comics are almost indulgently violent to the point of comedy, include numerous sexual assaults, sophomoric humor that a high schooler would find immature, and honestly lack a lot of the nuance that the show employs so well. The show also does a better job of condensing the main ideas of the comics while sidestepping a lot of its problems, and overall has a more coherent narrative. So what would a Superman analog look like in a world like this? In a world where no hero is good, where everyone and everything is a product, what does someone with near-omnipotence do? Well, according to Garth Ennis and Derek Robertson, the authors of the comic series, that character would be an unstoppable monster, a being purely of rage and power and emotionally detached to the point of psychopathy. Homelander, a man dressed in a navy blue jumpsuit with a literal American flag for a cape and eagle epaulettes, the shoulder pad thingies on formal military uniforms, is the leader of the Seven the show's equivalent of the Justice League, and the main antagonist of the series. Having been reared in a laboratory environment to become the Homelander, he displays psychopathic tendencies and is openly contemptuous of those he considers lesser beings. He is possessive, paranoid, vindictive, insensitive, and reckless with his powers. He is incapable of accepting the possibility of any flaw in his person or decision-making. Homelander has nearly all of the abilities that Superman does, but lacks the one thing that truly makes him a hero. Compassion. Being raised in a lab by scientists who only gave him a first name, and the most generic one at that, prevented him from ever developing any empathy for other human beings. In many ways, his real origin is more similar to Captain America's, manufactured in a lab by scientists. But that narrative isn't what the American people want, or what Vought International needs to sell. Instead, they push the narrative that Homelander was a normal kid from middle America bestowed with powers and raised to be a good, patriotic boy scout of a hero. He states on multiple occasions that he can do what he wants, no person can stop him, and simply because of the power that he possesses. To some extent, he's right. Apart from the one thing that temporarily weakens him, high frequency sonic blasts, he's completely invulnerable. The thing that ultimately stops Homelander from killing his own son and another protagonist is not a sense of right and wrong or another person physically intervening, but the threat that he will be exposed as a murderer and anti-American due to his narcissism. The character is a great example of how the world sees America, particularly through the lens of our popular culture. He is belligerent, self-aggrandizing, and claims moral superiority in the pursuit of justice. He draws lines in the sand that he then crosses, wraps himself in the American flag, and claims the God-given right to do whatever the fuck he wants. Because who's going to stop the Homelander? Or in other words, who's going to stop America? 
The fact that his origin is a lie, propagated by the very people who have everything to gain from his image, is a perfect indictment of America's own narrative of its founding and purpose juxtaposed with its actions. In Season 2, it's revealed that Vought has used Compound V in certain demographics that were under occupation or in conflict with the United States to create super-terrorists for Vought's heroes to fight. The company, which is now petitioning the Department of Defense to allow superheroes in the U.S. military, uses these terrorists and their attacks across the world, but particularly in the U.S., as a marketing point for their lobbying. <laughs> it's a good thing this is a fictional universe that has no real-world parallels so things will work out and the good guys will win and real people aren't dead because of this type of clandestine lobbying and manufacturing of extremism. <laughs> oh boy. But in all seriousness, this is a very not-so-subtle analog for the United States' involvement in the creation of many of the same terrorist groups it uses justification for the invasion and occupation of foreign countries, or the deposing of regimes it sees as counter to its geopolitical interests. Even though superheroes aren't real, private companies play a huge role in American imperialism, and the military-industrial complex is directly, and indirectly, responsible for war crimes, just like Homelander's killing of a civilian when he takes out a super-terrorist. Superheroes are always said to save the world, despite being a pretty uniquely American phenomenon. Sure, superhero movies do well across the world in cultures that have vastly different views on individuality, sovereignty, and the role of their country on the world stage. But Superman, Captain America, and plenty of other globe-trotting heroes do promote a kind of imperialism and the idea of American exceptionalism. They have jurisdiction everywhere, rarely answering for the destruction of property or collateral damage, and use methods of extreme violence all while condemning it by basically anyone else. Homelander co-ops nationalistic politics, American evangelical Christianity, and the language of the US as world police to give himself a sense of power and purpose beyond his physical abilities. The Christ imagery isn't posed as divine protection and responsibility, but as cultish and dangerous, as the citation of divine right to commit violence is all that many people need. It directly takes on portrayals like Zack Snyder's Christ imagery in Man of Steel and points out how that could be manipulated. Homelander is, without a doubt, my favorite example of an evil Superman analog, particularly because it takes the core ideas of the character and holds them up to a mirror. They're obviously distorted and used as a commentary, but it doesn't turn the actual mainstream character of Superman into a psychopath and a narcissist with no regard for human life and an obsession for power. We'll talk more about why I think turning the actual Superman into a villain kind of defeats the purpose of mainstream superhero stories, but for now, let's just appreciate that The Boys takes a uniquely American concept and uses it to critique the worst parts of its patriotism and culture. Truth, justice, and the American way aren't a message of hope, but a perverse statement of power and divine self-righteousness. What if Superman landed on Earth just 12 hours later? What if he didn't even land in the United States at all? What about truth, justice, and the Soviet way? This is the exact question posed in the Elseworld story from 2003, Superman, Red Sun. Elseworld stories, for those who aren't familiar with DC Comics, take place in entirely self-contained continuities whose only connection to the canon DC continuity are the presence of familiar characters. Famous Elseworld stories include depictions of Batman as a 19th century detective hunting Jack the Ripper, or the DC heroes as gunslingers in the Old West. 
Red Sun follows a Superman who landed on a Ukrainian collective in 1938. Immediately recognized as an alien gifted with incredible abilities and raised to be a tool of Stalin's Soviet regime. What makes the Soviet Superman so interesting is the way in which the author, Mark Millar, subverts the audience's predisposition toward the USSR and a potential human superweapon. Instead of presenting Superman as a purely evil tyrant on the level of his surrogate father and dictator, Joseph Stalin, Millar instead has him pledge to protect the people of Earth as a sort of goodwill ambassador of Soviet ideals. Early in the story, he prevents a satellite, which itself turns out to be Sputnik, from crashing into Metropolis. Especially here in the US, we've been conditioned to view the USSR as an absolute villain in the history of the 20th century. And don't get me wrong, the regime in which Red Sun takes place was absolutely a tyrannical, totalitarian one that oppressed its people and had little regard for human rights. But that was one part of its history. And as someone who is, let's say, capitalism skeptical, the total demonization of the Soviet Union is something that I find to be a little too black and white. Even if you're full on the capitalism train, writing off the Soviet Union as a backward, awful hellscape with no redeeming qualities, or with every person living there as either a perpetrator of crimes against humanity or a victim of the state, isn't really productive when we're talking about real geopolitics. Red Sun confronts this head on. Its depiction of Superman is not inherently evil, despite being raised as an adopted son of Stalin. He shows compassion for the people of the USSR and commitment to the ideals of Karl Marx, without the radical tyranny of Russian Bolshevism, particularly the brand of Stalin. He believes in equality above all, that people should be freed from the chains of those who exploit them. Of course, he approaches these ideals in ways that are often dubious. In order to combat dissent among the public, he cracks down on political dissidents and alters their brains with the help of a supercomputer. This essentially turns them into pure servants of the state. Uncomplicated, uncontroversial, and frankly, unconscious. What I find so interesting about the portrayal of Superman in this universe is the question that the text begs. Is Superman inherently caring for humanity, or was he simply a product of his upbringing in rural Kansas? And the answer that Red Sun gives us is… maybe? Superman is compassionate, particularly for his people, but aims to spread communism to the world not solely out of disdain for humanity or a desire to rule over it, but because he believes Soviet communism is the answer to the world's problems. He wants to lift the exploited out of poverty and create a better world. The ways in which he attempts to do it are not good, but it would be flat out false to call him the villain of the story. I'm not sure if anti-hero is even a completely accurate term, as he's definitely morally superior to characters like The Punisher or Tony Soprano. But he's complex, conflicted, and altogether willing to do questionable things in the name of what he believes is right for humanity, despite the pain it could cause others. So now that we've gotten through the more politically explicit versions of the trope, I want to talk about the more comic booky ones. These are a bit less compelling in my opinion, as they have less to say about Superman, his place in contemporary culture, and the political ramifications of the universe in which it's set. This isn't to say comic bookiness is inherently bad, not every story has to be rooted in political theory, but rather that they lack the real-world commentary that make Red Sun and Homelander so interesting. They're more character studies. Or in some cases, if we're being honest, twisted versions meant to shock the audience. 
Injustice is a fighting game series, and later a comic series, that focuses on an interdimensional conflict between DC's heroes. In a parallel universe, the Joker tricks Superman into killing his pregnant wife Lois Lane and detonating a nuclear weapon that destroys Metropolis, killing millions of people. Mad with grief and rage, Superman murders the Joker, quickly losing his moral compass. Cut to five years later, Superman has formed the One Earth Regime to enforce global peace through fear, and rules the Earth as a ruthless dictator, alongside many other heroes and villains he recruited, or forced, into joining him and killing any who oppose him. Batman establishes the insurgency to oppose Superman's regime, and the ensuing war between the two factions leaves the Justice League disbanded. Batman is able to teleport heroes, including an alternate version of himself, into his dimension in order to join the insurgency and take down Superman's regime. Through a series of gigantic battles and some portal trickery, regime Superman is defeated by his alternate universe self, and the regime is slowly dismantled. Members who were coerced or captured are rehabilitated or pardoned, and the world begins to heal. The good version of Superman, from the main timeline, pities his regime counterpart, but very clearly draws a line in the sand. Lois Lane, all versions of her, would be horrified at the dark path he went down. He expresses genuine concern that he himself could lose his way if such a tragedy were to happen to him. And in the sequel, the new Justice League releases Regime Superman from his imprisonment to help defeat an existential threat. But rather than depicting a remorseful being who has reevaluated his actions, he is still a militant authoritarian with little to no regrets. His only reflective moment is lamenting the dissolution of the Justice League, a group of superpowered beings who enact their sense of right and wrong on those who are less powerful. A lot of people have described this version of Superman as a fascist, and I think that's worth interrogating. To be honest, I think the term is a bit overused. Not in the sense that there aren't real fascists that exist today, there absolutely are, but not every authoritarian is a fascist. Red Sun is a perfect example of this. Stalin, and later Soviet Superman, are authoritarian dictators, but they're not fash. Let me explain. Umberto Eco was an Italian medievalist, philosopher, semiotician, cultural critic, political and social commentator, and a novelist who grew up in fascist Italy under Benito Mussolini. He wrote politically his entire life, and his 1995 essay, or Fascism, Echo outlined 14 general properties of fascist ideology. He argues that it is not possible to organize these into a coherent system, but that, quote, it is enough that one of them to be present to allow fascism to coagulate around it. He uses the term er-fascism as a generic description of different historical forms of fascism. If we go through these points and compare them with Injustice Superman, there's a few that are checked off. Number one, disagreement is treason. Fascism devalues intellectual discourse and critical reasoning as barriers to action, as well as out of fear that an analysis will expose the contradictions embodied in a syncretistic faith. This one's easy. Superman executes members of the Justice League who disagree with him, and hunts down the members of the insurgency who fight back against his totalitarianism. There's only one correct opinion, and it's Superman's. If you don't agree, you don't get to live. Two. Fascist societies rhetorically cast their enemies as, quote, at the same time, too strong and too weak. On the one hand, fascists play up the power of certain disfavored elites to encourage in their followers a sense of grievance and humiliation. On the other hand, fascist leaders point to the decadence of those elites as proof of their ultimate feebleness in the face of an overwhelming popular will. 
Superman and the regime take over the world and begin to execute criminals, particularly famous supervillains, in order to create a more safe and secure world. He characterizes them as scum, a threat to society too great to let live, but also executes them with ease and promises the world with no hesitation that the regime will be successful. 3. Pacifism is trafficking with the enemy, because life is permanent warfare. There must always be an enemy to fight. In other words, both fascist Germany under Hitler and Italy under Mussolini worked first to organize and clean up their respective countries and then build the war machines that they later intended to, and did, use, despite Germany being under restrictions of the Treaty of Versailles to not build a military force. This principle leads to a fundamental contradiction within fascism. The incompatibility of ultimate triumph with perpetual war. Batman's refusal to participate in the mass execution of prisoners, dissolution of governments, imprisonment of dissidents, and a perpetual crusade against crime and dissent leads him and like-minded individuals to be cast out and hunted. And to be clear, this is Batman we're talking about. It's not some peace-loving hippie who preaches non-violence. It's a man who runs around in a bat costume beating criminals into a pulp. But to this new regime Superman, anything less than playing judge, jury, and executioner is pacifism and therefore treason. Number four, contempt for the weak, which is uncomfortably married to a chauvinistic popular elitism in which every member of the society is superior to outsiders by virtue of belonging to that society. Echo sees in these attitudes the root of a deep tension in the fundamentally hierarchical structure of fascist polities, as they encourage leaders to despise their underlings, up to the ultimate leader who holds the whole country in contempt for having allowed him to overtake it by force. I mean, this one just goes without saying. A living god is going to look down on pretty much everyone who doesn't have his power. So yeah, if we look at it like this, Superman in the Injustice series is, to say at least, a bit fash. But he's missing one factor, which is the lack of nationalism. Fascism at its core is really nationalistic. German fascism is different from Italian fascism, which is different from Spanish or American or Brazilian or Hungarian fascism. Superman's regime lacks the specific language of contemporary and historical fascist movements and instead approaches it from a more humanity-centric perspective. Let's call it Earthism. Humanism would be a little too generous to a mass murderer. This version of the character, while a somewhat interesting premise, fails to have any nuance or political commentary in the way that Red Sun or Homelander do. It ultimately boils down to Superman, a Hitler that can fly, and to shock its audience. If anything, the most interesting question that Injustice's Superman asks is whether one bad day can push someone so far that they throw away their morality entirely, which has already been asked plenty of times, and... Well, it depends on who the writer is and what decade you're in, and... In March of 2021, just over one year following the end of the world as we knew it, another reckoning took place. Nearly four years after its release, after numerous fan campaigns and targeted harassment, after billboards and hashtags and YouTube comment sections and subreddits were constructed and funded, the Messiah arrived. A divine prophet sent to reveal that holy text which had been so brutally altered from the original version that it was in itself unrecognizable. I'm talking, of course, about the one and only, 
Zack Snyder's Justice League, aka the Snyder Cut, aka the Reservation of the Snyderverse, aka the 11th Commandment, and the New 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 Testament, oh my god. Sorry. The details surrounding the release of Zack Snyder's Justice League are complex and long and exhaustive, and I'm willing to bet that you've already heard enough about it from multiple different sources that are 10 times more qualified to cover this information, so I'm not going to go into them. If you want to learn a bit more about the whole shebang and what happened behind the scenes of the production of Justice League, you should go watch Folding Ideas and Melina Pendulum's extensive video essays on the topic. So just to set the stage in the context of Superman, in Justice League at least, Clark Kent is dead. He was killed by Doomsday in the previous film, 2016's Batman v Superman, and has been six feet under since. The world mourns the loss of the Man of Steel, and Batman has an intense amount of guilt for ostensibly causing his death. He seeks both redemption and to fill the void in global protection that Superman occupied, and learns of an inevitable extraterrestrial threat to humanity. He begins to put a team together made up of various metahumans that he's followed for some time, but they're quickly defeated by the movie's villain, Steppenwolf. He's a servant of Darkseid, the series' big bad, tasked with collecting mother boxes that will cause an extinction-level event and prepare the Earth for Darkseid's rule. These boxes also, potentially, have the ability to bring Superman back from the dead. So Batman and the rest of the team decide to exhume Superman's corpse and shock it with the combination of the mother box and the Flash's speed in order to resurrect the Man of Steel. They're successful, and because he is apparently confused and also mad at Batman, he begins to attack the group. We get our first real taste of an evil version of Henry Cavill's Superman. Well, not the first, technically, but we're gonna get to that. Just hold your horses, guy. Right before this, however, Cyborg has a vision of what may come. The Justice League is killed, Darkseid conquers Earth, and Superman is turned. He is shown holding the charred carcass of what is most likely Lois, and Darkseid stands behind him. Right after, the film shows us a Superman hovering over the dead body of a Green Lantern and in the rubble of the Justice League headquarters, holding the Batman mask in his hand, red eyes in tow. Behind him, a decimated Earth City, and burned into the ground an Omega, the symbol of Darkseid. So let's talk about this. Because this isn't the first time we've seen this imagery. In 2016's Batman v Superman, Bruce Wayne has a dream-slash-vision-slash-that's-so-raven-esque psychic vision of the future in which Batman is leading an insurgency on a scorched earth with an Omega symbol burned into the ground, and parademons along with men in SWAT gear with a Superman crest on their arm attack him and his group of radical post-apocalypse Mad Max-looking dudes. They lose and are taken prisoner, where Superman later shows up. The soldiers bow to him like a king, and he executes the other prisoners by cutting them in half with laser vision. He tells Batman, quote, She was my world, and you took her from me. He then executes Batman, and the dream sequence ends. So, to understand where I'm going with this, we have to talk about Zack Snyder's original five-part plan for the Justice League. It was to start off with Man of Steel, which would introduce Superman, then move to Batman v Superman, which would expand the universe and set up the Justice League films that would eventually turn out to be a trilogy. This trilogy, which was cut short and ultimately scrapped because of internal affairs and Snyder's departure from the project and then Warner Brothers entirely, never came to fruition. But Zack Snyder has been pretty vocal about his original plans, posting on Vero, which is a kind of alternate Twitter that prides itself on being ad-free and more privacy-oriented and talking about it in commentary tracts. Originally, what is now known as Zack Snyder's Justice League was going to happen more or less as it did. 
The sequel, most likely called Part 2, would follow the Justice League as they prepared for Darkseid's inevitable invasion by traveling to Apocalypse, his homeworld, and its cosmic counterpart called New Genesis, essentially space heaven and space hell. They would team up with the New Gods, who are benevolent superspace beings to fight Darkseid and his army. They would fail horrifically, with Darkseid teleporting to Earth, taking it over, and killing Lois Lane. This would then allow him to harness the anti-life equation. The anti-life equation is to Darkseid what the Infinity Stones are to Thanos. It's a somewhat vague, all-powerful cosmic object or force that would give them godlike powers. Specifically, it would allow Darkseid to dominate the free will of any living being. He would use this to turn Superman after the death of his wife, who would by now be pregnant with their child, and turn him into a tyrant ruling over Earth with a regime set up to help him. Sounds familiar. Eventually, the team would go back in time to prevent the Justice League from ever leaving Earth, and the world would be saved, and Superman never turns evil, and Darkseid dies. So clearly this has a lot of similarities to Injustice Superman. Though I think it's better, as it gives a more plausible explanation for why Superman becomes evil. Instead of it being due to a seriously awful day, his fall from grace is the result of him losing his free will entirely. Snyder clearly planned this from early on. Though he didn't write the films himself, he was heavily involved in the creative process, given almost complete control over his five-part series from the start. What strikes me most about this version is that it felt, at least to me, like the culmination of this trope. Obviously, the film was originally slated to come out in 2017, meaning it would be released before The Boys or Injustice 2, but because it is by far the most mainstream, a theatrical movie is just going to get more attention from casual audiences than a video game is, it's the defining representation of Superman. Its release in 2021 marks a kind of bookend for the trope, or at least I hope so. You may be asking, why do you hope for these things? What problems do you have with this trope? Well, gentle sunflower, let me tell you. The thing I find ultimately really frustrating about these interpretations is that they're kind of the only ones that we get anymore, to the point where the mainline depiction of Superman is someone who could turn evil. Even in Man of Steel, Superman's lack of regard for human life and willingness to kill General Zod doesn't exactly do the character justice. And then to turn around at BVS and show him killing people left and right, foreshadow his fall to the dark side, and then kill him off, it just represents a lack of understanding of the character. Even with characters like Homelander or Dr. Manhattan, they're meant to be examinations. They're dark, twisted versions meant to deconstruct the character to show how misunderstanding them can lead to really fucked up ideologies and actions. But they're not trying to be the mainstream versions. DC has spent decades making Superman as family-friendly and ubiquitous as Mickey Mouse, and has almost entirely pissed that image away in less than a decade. The problem with making Superman constantly evil is that it consistently floods the market with a version of the character that is not only inaccurate, but actively flies in the face of what he stands for. Yes, the thought experiment is interesting, but we've had enough of it now. We've had enough depictions of Superman as a man who uses his power not to help people, but to rule over them. A man so disconnected from the people with whom he grew up that he has no social ties at all. Human beings are not his peers, but his subjects. And besides, there's something deeply weird about portraying Superman as a fascist in particular. Something a little fascist itself, actually. Uh-oh. Did comics accidentally do an anti-Semitism? Mm -hmm.
maybe? Question mark? Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, the creators of Superman, were both Jewish Americans. Siegel's parents had fled anti-Semitism in Lithuania, and Schuster's mother emigrated from Ukraine and his father from the Netherlands. Siegel and Schuster met in high school at Glenville, where a large part of Cleveland's Jewish population lived. Superman was a character created over the course of the mid-1930s as Hitler's rise to power and targeting of Jewish people as a main threat to German society began to gain notoriety. Americans weren't blind to this. Theaters showed newsreels at the beginning of every movie, newspapers could have foreign correspondents that would report on current events and then wire back to the states, and Jewish Americans could see the writing on the wall. And while they've never gone on record as saying this, Superman is absolutely a character meant to engage with the real-world anxieties that Schuster and Siegel were experiencing. The story of an invincible man who could deflect bullets and jump buildings in a single bound is empowering when your people are constantly being vilified by a madman with an insane amount of power and war seems to be on the horizon in every direction. If you're not familiar with Jewish folklore, or more particularly the Golem, let me break it down. And yes, I promise this gets back to the topic. Just bear with me, this is interesting. The most famous origin of the Golem is from the 16th century in Prague, inside the walled Jewish ghetto. And despite the name, this part of the city is actually pretty peaceful and relatively prosperous. That is, until children start to turn up murdered and drained of blood. Anti-Semites within the city begin to accuse Jewish residents of sacrificing Christian children and using their blood ritualistically, what is historically called the blood lie, or blood libel. The head of the synagogue, named Rabbi Lowe, creates a humanoid figure out of clay and brings it to life by inscribing the letters Aleph Mim Toph on his forehead to spell the word emet in Hebrew, which means truth. This brings the golem to life, and he is tasked with protecting the ghetto and finding out who is actually killing the children of Prague. After the ghetto is stormed by rioters, the golem becomes a violent protector, tosses people out, and injures some of them. Rabbi Lo appeals to the Holy Roman Emperor, who promises to grant the Jewish people security in Prague, but only if Lo disables the golem. So, Rabbi Lo takes the golem to the attic of the synagogue, where he explains what has happened, and then erases the aleph from his forehead, creating the word met, or death, in Hebrew. The rabbi says the prayer for the dead, and legend has it that the golem remains inside the attic of the synagogue to this day. Oftentimes, the story of the golem is one of tragedy, and also a fable. The only person who can truly create life is God. And the creation of a golem, even by a rabbi with good intentions, is merely playing God. So why the hell am I telling you about Jewish folklore? Because Superman, in all his wonderful, silly, Protestant American idealism, is a golem. He is the creation of two Jewish men during a time of rising anti-Semitism and hatred across the world. These artists created life, put words into his mouth, and made him an invincible protector, not a violent avenger. Though it wasn't coined by Siegel and Schuster, it's all the more telling that the first word in Superman's catchphrase is emet. Truth. And there's something noble about a character created to protect people. One with immense power. Power to hurt or to kill or to conquer, but one that chooses to use that power to help. To protect. Depicting Superman as some sort of hateful fascist or maniac misses what makes him so special. Just like the Gollum, the character was created for a reason. So 
why do we love this trope so much? I think there's a few explanations for this. We, as a culture, cannot imagine an omnipotent being using its power for good. It seems too good to be true in most cases. I've mentioned Robert Carroll before, but the quote never fails to stick with me. When he was interviewed about his massive biography on the life of President Lyndon B. Johnson, he deliberated extensively on the topic of power. Quote, We're taught Lord Acton's axiom, all power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. I believed these when I started these books, but I don't believe it's always true anymore. Power doesn't always corrupt. Power can cleanse. What I believe is always true about power is that power always reveals. When you have enough power to do what you always wanted to do, then you see what the guy always wanted to do. Men in power seem to always abuse it. For some reason, we can't imagine a person with real power doing the right thing. And so because of our real-world examples, we've constructed ways for it to happen in our fiction as well. It's hard to imagine benevolence when all we see is its counterpart. But what makes Superman so special isn't that he has power. It isn't that he came from a different planet and is one of the last surviving members of his people. What makes him special is that he was found by two people in Smallville, Kansas, who raised him to help others, to care for and protect the people of Earth. Not because he was sent with some predestined obligation, but because it's the right thing to do. Superman, at his heart, is a rejection of the notion that power corrupts. In this case, it reveals. It reveals a truly good person. Superman wears a symbol of hope on his chest for a reason. He's a living embodiment of the unwillingness, the inability to give up. Grant Morrison, the author of the greatest Superman story ever written, said it best. Somewhere in our darkest night, we made up the story of a man who will never let us down. So let's be done with this. If anything, what we need now is a character who doesn't give up. At a time when finding hope feels like an impossible task, I think we could use a hero who wears optimism and hope on their chest. A person who chose to be good, to help, and to never stop fighting for what's right. Stay hopeful. <laughs>